0: Not a lot of space on the stage for my uh, big body here. <laughs> we made it, though. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Pardon my voice. I feel well. If that puts anyone at peace. Just pray that my voice will hold up through this sermon. And... Uh, On behalf of my family, I just want to thank you for your prayers and care for uh, my family who was hit hard with pneumonia and flu. uh, Everyone's on the mend. Many of you have asked this morning. uh, The love of God is expressed to us through this church in a plethora of ways. And so we give thanks to God for each and every one of you. This morning we'll spend most of our time in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5. However, we must look at verses 1 through 7 so that we can better understand verses 4 and 5. And so I'm going to read Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. I do now invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. It's good and right for us to remember that he is the only true God and that this is his word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God through God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I'm thankful for Psalm 34 this morning because there are times when we do fear. There are times when we do fret. We're anxious. We're concerned because we've forgotten how good you are. Because we've fixed our gaze not on the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, but elsewhere. And so thank you for the invitation this morning to taste and see that the Lord is good. Help us to taste and see more of yourself now, we ask through the proclamation of your word. Have your way in us. Teach us by your spirit that we might rejoice knowing that joy has come to the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Galatians the book of Galatians. It's really about one central reality. And that central reality is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Paul is writing to counter false teachers who insist upon circumcision and who insist upon adherence to the law of Moses for salvation. And Paul counters these false teachers by detailing that Jews and Gentiles alike are justified by faith alone apart from any works of the law. I can't uh, underscore, highlight, add enough emphasis on the importance of the biblical understanding and notion of justification by faith alone. The biblical idea of justification by faith alone is this, it's, it's legal or forensic Proclamation wherein God declares that a guilty sinner is righteous, but not because of their merit or their own righteousness or their deeds, but rather it's on the basis of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is then credited or accounted or imputed to our account by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's so important, I'm going to say it again. The biblical idea of justification by faith is legal. It is a legal or forensic proclamation wherein God declares a guilty sinner to be righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed or credited to sinners like you and I by grace through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. What a beautiful reality. Without that reality, you and I are in trouble, friends. But God, in his grace and in his mercy, he He grants or he gives or he gifts this faith. And this faith that is a gift of God is the, the agent or the instrument or the tool by which we might Grasp onto the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed the grounds, the basis, the foundation of our justification. You need to understand, dear friends, the reality of justification by faith alone, because it's what the Bible teaches. And specifically, justification by faith is what the book of Galatians defends, The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, defends justification by faith alone, personally. His own experience in chapters 1 and 2. Then the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, defends justification by faith alone, theologically, in chapters 3 and 4. And finally, the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, defends justification by faith alone, practically, in chapters 5. And six, and dare I say that Christmas is about justification by faith alone. Last week, Pastor Jeff preached Mark chapter 10, verse 45, which shows us that Jesus came to serve and that his primary service was the giving of his perfect life to ransom many. Or in other words, we could say that Jesus came to die in order to purchase sinners so that by faith in him, sinners might be justified. If Christmas is about the coming of Christ, and it is, then the true meaning of Christmas is inseparable from the purposes for which Christ came. And in this way, Christmas is about justification by faith alone. Although Christmas, that is the coming of Christ, is about justification by faith alone, it is about more than justification by faith alone because Christ came for multiple purposes. As you've noticed, the title of our Christmas series this year is The Gift of the Incarnate Son, and it is a gift. God has graciously graciously given us His Son, and the benefits from that gift are more, beloved, far more than we can bear to imagine. Yet, we don't have to imagine all the wonderful benefits we receive from the gift of the incarnate Son, for God is pleased to communicate some of those benefits to us through His written Word. And so, yes, Christmas is about justification by faith in the Son of God. But another benefit that we receive by faith in the Son of God is sonship. You're sons of God if you're in Christ. In other words, Christmas is also about our adoption into the family of God which is only made possible by the coming of Christ so therefore i've entitled this sermon God's son came to give us sonship and before we get into our main passage galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 let us look at the context that leads up to our passage paul has just finished teaching that in regards to salvation everyone is on equal footing in Christ. That's what Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 teaches. Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Therefore, all believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether slaves or free, whether males or females, have a salvific unity. In Christ, such that through Christ we are Abraham's offspring and heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. And that's exactly what Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 teaches. He says, and if you are Christ, meaning that Christ owns you, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Remember, Abraham is known as the father of faith. Remember Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed or Abraham trusted or Abraham had faith in God, and then what happened? God credited or accounted it, his faith, to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 teaches justification by faith alone. God is always saved by justification, or he's always justified, rather, by faith. And so what we have in Abraham is the human exemplar. He's the father of faith, and those of us who have the same faith that Abraham has, present tense, have become Abraham's spiritual children and are recipients of the spiritual blessings of the promise to Abraham. This is exactly what Paul's been arguing up to this point. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, this is from the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Or a few verses later, verses 13 through 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to who? Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in this way, we have become children, spiritual children of Abraham, the man of faith. But we've become more than that if we're in Christ. We've become children of God himself look at verse 24 of chapter 3 so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith or some translations translate guardian as tutor teaches that the law is a tutor or a guide or a guardian to lead us to Christ and then be justified by faith in Christ Verse 24, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And as we've already read, verses 28 and 29, if you're in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Hairs according the promise. So now in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul provides an illustration on being children and heirs. In verses 1 through 3, this is what it says I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so what verses 1 and 2 do is they show us that the child of a master and the slave of that same master are functionally the same in this way. They are both under the authorities that the master or the father has placed over them. But we have a twist in verse 3. A little change up in the illustration if you will. In verse 3 Paul indicates that before Christ came we were not children of God rather we were children of another master enslaved to the ways of the world and this is what necessitates our adoption into the family of God. This is what necessitates our adoption into the family of God is that we have a father, and his name is Satan before Christ. Beloved, the reality of verse 3 is really, honestly, what makes Christmas so great? It's what makes Christmas great. I understand we don't like to be told that we're children of Satan and that we're sinners, but unless we receive that truth, the meaning of Christ and Christmas is diminished. If you are unable to say that you were once a child of Satan, enslaved to the principles of this world, then you've not been made a child of God. And before you can become a child of God, you must see that you're a son of Satan, that you're a worker of lawlessness, that you're a slave to the world, that you're a lover of evil and a hater of righteousness. This is the biblical view of human nature after the fall, and prior to conversion in Christ. But I'm not done preaching, am I? The one who sees himself as a sinner before God. Oh, he's ready to receive the joys of Galatians chapter four verses four and five. The one who sees himself as a needy, rebellious sinner against the one who gave him life, is ready to receive the Son of God as Lord and as Savior and as big brother. this brings us to our text. The main idea of our text, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, teaches that God's Son came to redeem sinners and make them adopted sons of God so that Christians, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, may no longer live as slaves of the world, but as heirs of their father. Somebody give me amen already. What a great text. What we're going to do is we're going to work through this text under four headings provided for you in your outline. We're going to see first the nature, or I'm sorry, the timing of the son's coming, then the nature of the son's coming, and the purpose of the son's coming, and finally the result of the son's coming. Let's consider first... The timing of the son's... It's going to bother me. Make sure I'm plugged in here. The timing of the son's coming. First part of verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So what we have in the illustration prior to our passage, remember in verse 2, displayed that the father set the time for his minor child to be freed from the guardianship. And what we have here in verse 4 is, in an in, in inexact way, the illustration of verse 2 correlates to what we find here in verse 4, in that the father is the one who sent his son when the fullness of time had come. I love what one commentator said. He said, as a human father chose the time for his child to become an adult son, Verse 2. So the Heavenly Father chose the time for the coming of Christ to make provision for people's transition from bondage under the law to spiritual sonship. What we see here, this idea of when the fullness of time had come is the sovereignty of God who realized, who actualized in time that which he planned before the foundation of the world. It's not as if God is laying back in his recliner, waiting around for time to indicate to him or for time, a certain time, to incite him to action. No, what we have is when the fullness of time came, that time which the Lord himself had appointed, he did what he determined to do before the creation of the world, and that is to send his Son to redeem sinners. In other words, the fullness of time is when God realizes his eternal plan to send his son in time. Like what Doug Moose says, he says the fullness of time refers to that moment in salvation history when God deemed it appropriate to initiate the work of redemption by sending his son into the world. Notice the, the sovereignty of God on display. He's the initiator. He is the one who is deeming when the time is appropriate. What some commentators do is they suggest that things brought about by culture indicate when God would send forth his son. For instance, some say the peace and the road system that the Roman civilization had brought about, along with the Greek language becoming the, the lingua franca, the, the common language among various people groups in that geographical region along with the messianic hope that was being proclaimed in the first century by Jews in the Mediterranean world, that that those things are what necessitated or brought about God sending forth his Son. And certainly such were the circumstances when Christ entered the world. However, what made the time appropriate was simply that God deemed it to be so. The fullness of time emphasizes that then, that in that moment was the time for God to begin to realize his promises of redemption that his people had been waiting for for centuries. What what promises? Let's read a few from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When after the fall, God declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or Micah chapter 5 verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Or perhaps a New Testament passage. Matthew chapter 1 verses 21 through 25, She will bear a son. This is the angel speaking to Joseph as he's concerned my wife is pregnant, and I have not known her. That's concerning. But this is the promise from God given to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And the fullness of time had come, which God determined, God saw fit to fulfill his plan in Christ. As Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 teaches, that God in Christ was making known to us the mystery of his will as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. And what we have in the coming of Christ is God sending forth his son to begin the work of uniting all things in Christ. In the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This brings us to our second heading, the nature, the nature of the son's coming. Continuing on in verse 4, look with me, please. God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. There are four aspects. Four aspects on the nature of the Son's coming that I want us to look at together this morning. These aspects include the missional, the divine, the human, and the contextual aspects Christ coming, and we'll look at each of those in turn first. The missional aspect of Christ coming. The text says, God sent forth his Son. Emphasis on sent forth. God has one begotten Son, and he sent him on a mission out of heaven into the world. God has one begotten son and he made him a missionary and a preacher. And I can't help myself, a little pastoral aside, dear brothers, consider before the Lord being a missionary and or a preacher. And it may be vocationally, or it may be wherever your two feet are, you're gonna determine to be missional and proclaim God's word. We must do this. God's only begotten son did this. We'd be following his footsteps if we determined to do so ourselves. But back to the text and the point I need to make. One son, he's a missionary, and we know the text well, for God so loved the world, and he loved the world in this way that he sent his son on a mission, he sent and gave his only begotten son so that whoever, hear me, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That should bring a smile to your face. We hear it over and over when we grow up with it. But brothers and sisters, you will not perish if you're in Christ. But you will have everlasting life. And this is the mission that the Father sent his Son on. Praise the Lord. This, This is the missional aspect of the Son's coming. But there's also a divine aspect of the Son's coming. God sent forth his Son, Emphasis on his son. This is God's only begotten son that we are talking about. We believe, as the Nicene Creed puts it, one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both things in heaven and things on earth. This is the Son that he sent into the world. Preexistence of the Son is very much at play in our text. It's implied strongly in our text. God is not creating or making a Son and then sending him, no. Rather, this is the eternally generated Son, the Son who was in the beginning, and the Son who was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. It's that Son, the only begotten Son, the divine Son that was sent. There is indeed a divine aspect of the Son's coming, but there's also a human aspect of the Son's coming. God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, emphasis on born of a woman. Yes, this is the divine son, yet the incarnation of the divine son makes him truly human. Truly human. The humanity of Christ is expressed here. It's communicated here. In other words, the mode of the son's coming into the world is what we see in Galatians chapter four, verse four. Again, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Nicene Creed says, who for us men... And for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. This is what we just saw in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. That she, Mary, will bear a son, a true human, bearing a true human son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save you. People from their sins. That's what Jesus' name means. Yeshua. Salvation is of the Lord. Or Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7 teaches this. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. What in the world does that mean? That he emptied himself. Does it mean that he gave up or he relinquished control of the divine attributes? No, then he would cease to be God. It tells us in the text what it means for him to empty himself. In the very next line, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Truly God, truly human. There is a human aspect of the Son's coming. And lastly, there's a contextual aspect of the son's coming. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, emphasis on born under the law. He was born under the law as a Jew, and he lived his life, the entirety of his life, all of his human life under the Mosaic law. And Jesus lived obediently to God's law. Whereas all others lived in rebellion and disobediently to God's law. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Perfectly. And this is what makes his death so valuable, is because the only man who never, ever, ever deserved to die died in our stead. He tells us that he keeps the law because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In fulfilling the law of Moses, he rendered its power useless such that he fulfilled it in our stead and it has no power over us any longer. Praise the Lord. And although he kept the law perfectly, he also paid the law's penalty voluntarily as if he did not keep it perfectly. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 we already read it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus' keeping of the law and then voluntarily taking on its curse is necessary for our salvation. It's necessary for our salvation. As Thomas Schreiner puts it, as the one who lived under the law, he took the curse of the law on himself so that he could liberate and free those who are captivated by the power of sin. There's a contextual aspect of the son's coming. He was born as a Jew and carried out the Mosaic law perfectly. What did God do? He sent who did God send? His son. When did God send his son at the fullness of time? How did God send his son at the fullness of time? Through birth by a woman. Where did God send his son at the fullness of time through birth by a woman? To a Jewish context, when he was born as a Jew under the law. But why? I'm glad you asked. This brings us to our third heading, the purpose of the Son's coming. The purpose of the Son's coming. Verse 5 says to redeem those who are under the law. To redeem those who are under the law. Christ came to redeem, and to redeem means to secure deliverance of, or to liberate, or to free. The redeemed hear me, saints, the redeemed are free in Christ. You believe that? Redeemed South Bay. We're just a group of those from the South Bay who are redeemed. We're truly free in Christ. Not not free to live according to our fleshly desires, but free to love God and to live for his glory enabled and empowered by the Spirit of God to love God, love others, that he might be glorified. Christ came to redeem. And he came to redeem those who are under the law. The question for us is to whom does Paul refer when he speaks of those under the law? And we're gonna get technical just for a second, but it's important for us to understand what's going on. Generally speaking, Paul uses the phrase under the law to refer to Jews. However, there are times and places such as Romans chapter 2 where Paul indicates that there is a sense in which Gentiles are under the law also. Not because they have received the law of Moses or the Mosaic law, but because the law is on their hearts and on their consciences. And so in the context of Galatians, we have commentators split on how they understand those who are under the law. Does it refer to Jews? Does it refer to Gentiles? Does it refer to both? It's helpful for us to remember that Paul is writing to churches in the region of Galatia who are largely Gentile. He is writing to Gentiles who are being pressured uh, or, or being told that they need to uh, Have the Mosaic Law to go under the Mosaic Law, Christ plus, if you will. Christ plus, the Mosaic Law is wonderful. That's the pressure that they're receiving. And Paul comes hard, does he not? Justification is by faith alone. I preach the true gospel to you. Accursed is anyone who preaches any other gospel. And so, in that context, how are we to understand those who are under the law? Jews, Gentiles, or both? I understand that a difficult decision must be made, it's, and it's a difficult to make this decision. But to me, in context, it seems that Paul is speaking to both Jews and Gentiles alike. Specifically in this letter, what we see is Paul using plural pronouns, we and you, we and you. And he uses those at times for those who partake of the same spiritual reality. We can peek ahead in verse 5. And we see that Paul says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And if you understand that as, well, Paul's only speaking about Jews here, then you have a problem. Because if we look at verse 6, he says, and because you are sons, speaking to Gentiles. And so Paul maybe isn't as precise as we'd like him to be, or maybe he is perfectly precise. And we just need to have a better understanding. It seems that in this section, Paul has the idea that Christ came to redeem his people, both Jew and Gentile, who were under the law in some sense. Why? To make them children of God. And this correlates well to Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Let's read it one more time. Because this text emphasizes Jew and Gentile unity in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Abraham is a Jew, father of faith. His faith is to go to the Gentiles as well, and we are to receive that same promise, the promise of the spirit. So I think Jew and Gentile are both at play here. Let's pull out of that for a second because I don't want you to miss the main point that I'm trying to make. The main point that I'm trying to make, the reason why I'm trying to make this point is because this is what the text makes, is that Christ came to redeem. Christ came to redeem. And we see in chapter 3, verse 13, that he redeemed by his death. And So this verse actually speaks of his substitutionary death in the place of sinners and teaches that we are liberated from the law at the cost of Jesus' life. The purpose of the Son's coming was to die. Christmas is about penal substitutionary atonement by the death of Christ. Christmas is about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, so that God might receive the glory alone. But Christmas is also about our sonship. This brings us to our final heading, the result of the son's coming. Continuing in verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons so that we might receive adoption as sons. Beloved, there is no adoption as sons without the death of the Son. In other words, the result of the Son's coming, our adoption, is inextricably linked to the purpose of the Son's coming, His death for our redemption. The latter is dependent On the former. Christ came to redeem, and in so doing, we who believe in Christ have become sons of God. And I'm not trying to get a laugh here, I'm I'm being dead serious, and I have to preface that because we live in a crazy culture right now. But both males and females have become children of God, not because of gender confusion, but because both males and females receive. The full privileges as sons of God in Christ. And that helps us understand Galatians chapter three, verse 28. People do crazy things with Galatians chapter three, verse 28. But it's in the context of salvation. It's in the context of adoption. It's in the context of sonship that Paul is able to say, "There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all ones, for you are all one in Christ." He's not the obliterating distinctions. Rather, he's saying as far as salvation and the benefits of salvation goes. You're all the same. Praise the Lord. Well, what is adoption? That's a question that we wanna understand theologically. And What I mean by what is adoption is what is the Bible's teaching on adoption when we think of it in terms of salvation? Let me give you three definitions from some Bible encyclopedias that I think are helpful for us. This is from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. It says, theologically, adoption is the act of God by which believers become members of God's family with all the privileges and obligations of family membership. That's nice. That should encourage us. This is what the Lexham Survey of Theology says. says, adoption is the divine work wherein God declares regenerated believers to be his beloved sons and welcomes them into his eternal family. I appreciate that. I have privileges and obligations according to the first definition, but now, according to this definition, I'm told that those privileges and those obligations have eternal ramifications. That I'm not going back to the orphanage. I've been adopted by God and I'm secure. Praise the Lord. Last definition. Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. It says that adoption is the act of leaving one's natural family and entering into the privileges and responsibilities of another. In the Bible, adoption is one of several family-related terms used to describe the process of salvation and its subsequent benefits. Listen. God is a father who graciously adopts believers in Christ into his spiritual family and grants them all the privileges of heirship. Salvation is much more than forgiveness of sins and deliverance from condemnation. It is also a position of great blessing. Believers are children of God. Praise the Lord. Friend, if if you want to be in God's family, and I'm specifically speaking to you who haven't believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to be in God's family, you must be adopted. For there is no such thing as natural born sons of God. You must behold the Lord Jesus Christ, the big brother of believers who is simultaneously their Lord and their Master as well. Look to Him. Be saved. Acknowledge yourself as a sinner, enslaved to the principles of this world. Call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's been proclaimed from this text. And Saint, God help us. God help us to get this. Saint. You're a son of God. You're a child of God, adopted into the family of God, that will never change because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father has truly made you his own in the Son by the Spirit. The Father has graciously given you his Son will not also give you all things? You have access. You have access at all times to your heavenly Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. He sees you, he knows you, and he loves you as his son. This is why I love theology proper, when you think about being a son of God the Father, because I see how imperfect I am as a father access at all times, sometimes I tell my kids, hey, dad's working, you gotta go. Your father will never say that to you, Saint. Never. He he will say, come to me. Cast your anxieties on me. Why? Because he cares for you, Saint. How slow we are to cast our anxieties on him. How willing he is to hear more than we've offered. Beloved, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, we have seen that God's Son came to redeem sinners and to make them adopted sons of God so that you, Christian, may no longer live as a slave to this world, but rather as an heir of your father. The question is, well, where do we go from here? We go to verses 6 and 7, which read, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You must believe this text. I'm talking to you, Christian, who already believe this text. Yeah, the Bible's true. No, believe this text. Embrace this text. Preach this text to your soul until you're singing this text. And what you do is you fight against your circumstances with this text. I'm a son of God. You fight against your sin with this text because you're a son of God. You fight for your Humility. With this text, because of the begotten Son of God who is willing to humble himself to the point of death on a cross, how much more should we be willing to humble ourselves? You fight for joy. You fight for joy with this text. Because in sickness and in health, in life and in death, in valley and in mountain, peak you are a son of God. Because Christian, you are a son of God, therefore God has sent his spirit of the son into your heart. So cry. Cry, Abba, Father. Embrace your sonship and live no longer as a slave but as an heir of the Father. Lord, it would be our prayer that you would help us to this end. That we would marvel at the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came to make us sons of God. Lord, we we confess that we don't feel like that all the time. We confess that we doubt that. We confess there are times when we question that, but Lord, this text says that we have your spirit poured into our hearts that we might cry, Abba, Father, those of us who who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I'm asking, I'm, I'm begging, I'm pleading that you would, by your spirit, help us to embrace the realities that we find in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And that this Christmas season, Lord, above everything else, the challenges and the afflictions, the temptations, that you'd remember, that we would remember that we are sons of God. And that there is nothing, nothing that can change that yes these things in Jesus name amen